Wokeness has conquered the West. Identity politics, cancel culture, and trans ideology are all in the ascendant. How did we get here, and how can we fight back? These are the questions at the core of How Woke Won, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams, soon to be published by Spiked in partnership with John Wilkes Publishing. To celebrate the book's release, Joanna will be joining me for a live Zoom edition of this podcast on Monday the 16th of May at 7pm, and you can be there too. Spike supporters can join us for free. If you're a Spike supporter, you can claim your ticket now from the supporters hub. If you're not yet a Spike supporter, then sign up today and you'll get free access to this event plus lots of other exciting perks. Tickets will go on general sale next week if there are any left, but Spike supporters always get first dibs. So become a Spike supporter now to get your ticket before they're gone. Sign up at spiked-online.com slash supporters. Actually, if you look at what's happening in France, they are forming quite significant political movements. You know, Mélenchon, mm. Le Pen, more things are happening in French politics. And these, the main parties have been totally eviscerated. They've been destroyed. And that has not happened in Britain because our parties have sort of managed to absorb the currents. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the French are just giving up. It's that the French are actually trying to do new things. So I think France will be a very, very interesting country. In, in the next five to ten years. Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Freddie Gray. Freddie is the deputy editor of The Spectator. He is also host of The Spectator's Americano podcast. Freddie writes on many, many issues, including on France, a country he knows well. I spoke to him the day after Emmanuel Macron's victory in the French presidential election. So, Freddie, we're speaking the day after the French presidential election, and you can almost hear the sigh of relief being breathed in Brussels and capitals around Europe that Macron has won and Le Pen has not. And there are even some pretty wild claims about how this shows populism is on the wane and technocracy and the politics of globalism have been put back on a steady footing. That's a bit presumptuous, isn't it? It's not quite as clear cut as Macron having this stunning victory that puts to bed all the issues in Europe in the 21st century. Yeah, I think it's it's presumptuous. It's also fake in that I don't think anybody really thought any sane or intelligent commentator thought that Le Pen was going to win. Mm. I mean, it was very obvious um, that she didn't have the majority and she's increased the size of her appeal a lot. But the French right is sort of divided and the French left is sort of divided and the centre is a complete mess, it's a non-existent mess. And Macron has managed to sort of hoover it all up and I think you have to give Macron credit. I can't stand him as a person, <laughs> but he is a sophisticated politician, so a sophisticated campaigner, and he understands kind of politics in the mass media, hyper, you know, tech era we live in. And he's quite good at playing the game, but he's not popular. And uh, my mother's French, I got a large French family, and I was just talking to them all, and they're not, you know, different kinds of politics, some of them are left-wing, some of them are right-wing, 
but generally they were all just like, well, this is crap. You know, this is just a bad result. Um, they didn't want Le Pen to win. They didn't want Macron. They just, they're, they're not happy. Yeah, that's the feeling I get from what I've been reading and people I've been speaking to. And the way you've described it in a piece you've written, one of your first response is that the centre holds even as things fall apart. And I guess that's one of the interesting things about Macron. As you say, he's not wildly loved. He's not particularly popular. He's very, very unpopular in certain parts of France. And we've already seen protests. I'm not sure about the wisdom of protesting instantly against the democratic election. However, there have already been protests. We know about the Gilets jaunes phenomenon. He's not a, a very popular politician, but he's there. He's back in power. He is, uh, you know, he has been re-elected fairly convincingly with a pretty large margin uh, uh, of victory. So what is the impetus behind the vote for Macron? Of course, there will be those sections of society, particularly in Paris, who do see him as a safe pair of hands and a pretty competent politician. But is a lot of it simply that he's not Le Pen? He's he's a better bet than, you know, the far right candidate who lots of people would be scared of. What what do you think was the drive behind his victory this time around? I think it's old oldies. Well, you know, he got an extraordinary uh, 41%, I think, of over 65s. That's in the first round. But he's cleverly played. He's got pension reform coming, but it's not going to kick in until, you know, the oldies won't need to worry about it. So it's kind of, he's successfully made old people feel that he is the best choice for stability. And you have this odd situation in France where, you know, young people are voting for Mélenchon, a sort of cantankerous oldie, mm. and old people are voting for Macron, this mm. sort of, obviously bogus, but clever technocrat in the centre. So I think there's something going on there where he is able to seem stable to French people who know that France is, is sort of collapsing. You know, outside of the very richest areas, France is not doing well. But they don't want to go with a Le Pen because they're worried about how radical that might be. They don't want to go for dramatic economic reform by the left on, in a left-wing direction because they're that would make them nervous and they don't want the last years of their life to be chaotic, which I think a lot of people in France think they're, they're heading towards sort of chaos. So let's talk about our own views on Macron. You've already said you don't like him. Um, I feel very similarly. And I want to ask you what it is about him you don't like, because one of the things that has always struck me about Macron, and I know it, it risks becoming a bit of a caricature, but it also has truth in it is that he is the kind of almost a, mon a monarchical figure, although obviously democratically elected, in Paris, has an incredibly snooty attitude towards other parts of France, rural workers, pensioners even, he said some mean things about. So it's ironic that lots of old people have voted for him. Uh, striking workers, the Gilets jaunes, uh, you know, people who live outside of that almost walled city of privilege that is Paris, and then you have the rest of France. And he's always struck me as having an incredibly dismissive and sometimes even degraded view of those kinds of people. So is that accurate? Does he, does he come, does he strike you as a politician who completely misunderstands and even sometimes disdains ordinary French people? Yeah, I think my own dislike of him came from, I did an interview with him and about 10 other journalists when he was running in 2017. And we were all sort of sitting around the table and the other journalists were you know, this was post-Brexit, post-Trump. And so the other journalists were sort of desperate to love him. And I just found the way he, his manner was very grating. 
he clearly thinks of himself as a major, major intellectual, mm-hmm. and he loves riffing. And he was just an arrogant sod, basically. So I sort of didn't like him at that level. <laughs> but then I think, you know, you have to acknowledge that the presidency is, you know, anyone who wants to be president is going to be an arrogant sod. It's not a normal ambition. But I think what's odd is that he lets his dislike, his dislikability show so often. There was, there was a famous incident, you might remember it, when some young guy, he's like shaking hands with the crowd, and yeah. some young guy goes, Manu, Manu, which is his nickname. And he sort of calls him out and berates him, yeah. knowing exactly what he's doing, knowing the camera's on him. He berates him, and he says, you don't talk to a president like that. And it's very odd that he's, he, was, he presented himself as this startup guy, cool, young, appeals to, you know, la jeunesse. But then berates him for not respecting the office of the presidency sufficiently. And in a very weird way, that's exactly how he works, because the French are torn between their respect for their institutions and knowing that everything's collapsing. So I, I think it's, it's a very strange kind of arrogance. Uh, that's, that's a rather incoherent way of saying it. No, not at all. And you mentioned there something else I wanted to touch on, which is the other journalists we, who you were with when you were speaking to him and their desperation to love him. And that's been one of the most striking things. Certainly when he first won the presidency uh, first time round, there was this outpouring of giddy love and hysteria amongst the supposed intellectual elites of Western Europe who held him up as the answer to everything, essentially. And if you will remember The Economist had an image of him walking on water, which was simply extraordinary. (laughs) So certainly at the very beginning, back in 2017, so if you think about it, this is obviously the era of Trump and Brexit. Uh, You know, populism has been victorious in Britain and the United States. The, The Brussels technocracy is shaking very nervously at these various revolts that are taking place. And Macron was seen as the answer to those problems, the man who would restore normalcy. So how much do you think that that desperation for him to do those things what became part of his power, that it, he derived his power and his influence and his sense of swagger, I guess, less from the mandate given to him by the French people and more from the power invested in him by the kind of global elites, I suppose you could say, to, to restore order to the Western world. I think that's exactly it. And, and that, what you're saying reminds me of that time when Macron rolled out the red carpet for Trump. And there was a lot of pomp and ceremony, took him, down, took him around Paris. And it was a sort of, you know, he handled the stunt well. And the, the sort of commentariat, rather than being horrified that Macron was entertaining Trump, they said, in Britain particularly, they said, Oh, Macron's canny. He's outdoing Brexit Britain. He's he's outmaneuvering Brexit Britain. What a what a brilliant play from this incredible operator. You know, it didn't really lead to anything. I mean, Fred, Mac, Trump Macron relations were disastrous in the end. But it was very revealing of even flirting with Trump was not. It was not. It's not horrible when Macron does it. It's really clever yeah. and brilliant. Yeah. But then when Boris says something about, you know, Trump, you know, Boris did suck up to Trump occasionally. People would go, oh, disgusting. You know, that's, so it's, it, it revealed a lot, that, to me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Marine Le Pen, who is a monster according to the kind of traditional narrative. Uh, I think people are pretty aware now that she has tried to reform Front National in terms of moving it slightly away from the Islam immigration obsessions towards focusing more on... Uh, the crisis of the cost of living and economic issues and uh, trying to appeal to 
working class voters through those kinds of topics. But she is held up by num- a number of observers in Western Europe as this tyrannical, awful figure, neo-fascist, a female version of Hitler and so on. So that, that's another thing that makes it, if they really believe that, then that does also call into question the glee with which they have welcomed the current election results, because she gets 42% of the vote. And you think to yourself, if a pretty far right politician is getting 42% of the vote in France in 2022, that does point to problems under the surface that these people right now seem to be ignoring. Yeah, I mean, she's not, in terms of her policies and her image, she's not far right. I mean, she just isn't. But she is associated with a movement that was far right, and her name is Le Pen, and her father was anti-Semitic. So the reason she has failed, I think, primarily is because, a bit because of that, but also because she wasn't very good. You know, she did much better in the debate on Wednesday, but she's not a brilliant politician in the way Macron perhaps is. Um, she was outmaneuvered by him, really. And I think it's it's telling that, that the language with which she, the, the, the press thought they had to defeat her with in France particularly was to talk about the Republican front, you know, and that, you know, it can be summoned. The good people of France will come together to reject this evil. But it didn't really work, and no one quite believed it. And that's why her her vote went up. But it didn't go enough to defeat Macron because she wasn't a good enough politician. Yeah, absolutely. And I I agree with your assessment there. But what's quite striking is is the trend off the Le Pen dynasty or of that party and and their growing support. So if you, you know, right from her father's vote, which was always pretty small-ish, you know, 20%, around 20% or a bit less, uh, her vote has grown and it's grown between 2017 and this year. It's grown again and she has gained more votes, a pretty significant number of votes. What do you think the appeal is there? Now, the, the, the narrative that we will hear, no doubt, is that there is a lurking racism in France and a very large number of people have racist views. But obviously, there's something else going on. People are looking, I suspect for a politician who they think is not cut from the same cloth as the rest of them, who does seem to take ordinary people a bit more seriously. Now, we could discuss whether that's Le Pen or not, but isn't it the case that the driver behind her rising, the rising vote of her movement, is that ordinary people are looking for something that seems to them a bit more representative and a bit more respectful of what they are concerned about? I think definitely. And I think the way to think about that question is to ask, why Zamor failed, Eric Zamor failed, and Le Pen got to the second round. Because Zamor was sort of, in a way, a more middle-class phenomenon, more middle-class Catholic phenomenon. You know, posh Catholics liked him. But he also was very, very hard on immigration. Mm. You know, he would say much more shocking things about immigration than Le Pen. And Le Pen successfully pulled back a bit from the immigration stuff. And I, I know that Zamor's campaign advisors were urging him to talk about the cost of living crisis and, and not focus on immigration. And he said, no, 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 immigration is, my, is, is where I win. And this election would suggest that didn't work. It might work for Zamora in the future because immigration is such a huge issue in France. But I think what happened was she, she was speaking to voters about cost of living and talking as a sort of ordinary French person, a working class French person. 
it wasn't enough for her, but it, it's the reason why she's expanded her base, why she has formed a movement that is successful. Will she go on to 2027 to win that, to win more? I think probably not. But you've got to say that, you know, if you look over a longer period of time, she's failed three times each time she's grown her vote. If she were to run again and the dynamics all stay the same, she would be president. But I just, I don't think that's going to happen. Have you signed up to Spiked's daily newsletter yet? It's called Today on Spiked. Every day you'll get a roundup of all our content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. So you, you mentioned Zamor, and I wanted to ask you about him. You got into a bit of hot, hot water for interviewing him, which is ridiculous. I think journalists should interview whoever they want, and he's obviously a person of interest to the public discussion. But he is a pretty nasty piece of work. I mean, he does have, you say, as you say, he says shocking things. I mean, he does hold racist, prejudiced views. And he also, I mean, this is just probably my own prejudice, but I've always thought he he looks and sounds very slimy, but that's just, maybe that's just me. So, uh, but what frustrates yeah. me about the Zamor phenomenon is the way it gets lumped in with the populist phenomenon. Whereas I think as you've just indicated there, it was something slightly different. It was more of the kind of old bourgeois support that he was winning or certainly middle-class support um, from a certain upper echelon of society. Given the interview that you did and the fuss that it caused, how do you perceive of uh, Zamor now and his his chances for staying in French politics? I mean, I, th- I think if you look at it objectively, he started with, you know, nothing. And then he got, uh, what was it? He, he got a substantial number of votes. And he didn't do what Macron did, which is what when I wrote this, the first piece I wrote about Zamor, I was thinking that he, there is an opening possibly. And again, you can't talk about these things without people thinking you're cheering it on. <laughs> but I was saying there's an opening possibly for him to do on the right what, what Macron did on the left in 2017 and a, a, a sort of start-up movement that could swallow up the right. Uh, L'Union des Droites is a sort of recurring theme in French politics. But I don't think... I, I don't think he quite knew what he was doing. Mm. I mean, the, the Le Pen theory is that he was a Macron plant all along, <laughs> you know, and that uh, and that it was a sort of canny. I think that's a bit too advanced conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> but it was sort of interesting that I think a lot of the media were very excited by him because he was a media type figure, and he he's he's a Parisian intellectual, mm. and so he was a sort of enemy they could understand. Whereas Le Pen is this sort of slightly plodding. People call her La Poissonneuse, the fishwife, rudely. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's a sort of a representative of the working class, whereas Zemmour was able to seem exciting to the media. And then, of course, they got terrified because they heard what he was saying and his campaign actually started to do well. And then the dynamic changed because Le Pen still had the the strength on the right. But can I talk a little bit, a little bit about the about the reaction to the yeah. interview I gave with him? Because it was quite amazing to me. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, I, I think it would be exaggerating to call it a Twitter storm, but there was just... There was quite a few people sort of suggesting that I was giving platform to um, extremism by interviewing a guy who was polling second or third Mm. in the French presidential elections. It was one of those moments where you just think, this isn't just, well, maybe it is just Twitter, but it's also just kind of, you know, people, not outside of Twitter, people are emailing me going, look, I'm a bit worried you've gone too far here. And I thought, what have I done other than, (laughs) as a journalist, interviewed a president? 
And I thought the reaction was very, very strange to that. And anyway, that's just a bit about me. Sorry, that's boring. No, it's not boring at all. I think it's uh, uh, some people were saying about you, oh, Freddie Gray, he probably would have interviewed Mussolini during the Second World War. And I thought, well, I would interview yes, Mussolini. I would, have done. <laughs> I would like to know what, <laughs> these, what these people yeah. think <laughs> and what they're getting up to. But I think there was obviously in relation to people like Zamor, there is this fantasy among certain people in the liberal elite or whatever, whatever we want to call them that the only way you can solve problems like those people is to ignore them and they will go away, which, and history demonstrates time and again, that that's not how it works. And knowing what yes. people think and knowing where their support's coming from and knowing what they represent is an important aspect of knowing what's going on in politics. That's why it's a useful thing to do. It's because they think it's terrorism. Hmm. So they think it's, you know, you don't give it oxygen and then it'll go away. And the, but it's not terrorism. <laughs> yeah. It's politics. Okay. So moving away from the right to the left. Now, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Melanchon because, yeah, me too. I mean, he says lots of stupid stuff and I really can't get down with his eco-socialism and his animal rights stuff. And, and there are various things like that. And I think he was a bit cowardly on the gilets jaunes. And I think he's failed to connect with working class voters in a significant way, although we can come back to that and, and why. But I think he is... He's probably better than many left-wingers we have in the UK. He maintains a slightly critical approach towards the EU, although he's backed off from Frexit and talks instead about removing France from certain institutions rather than from the whole shebang. And he did very, very well in the first round of the presidential election. Yeah. And obviously people were looking for a politician who's, who seemed to take working class people seriously, whether he did or not. How do you see the Mélenchon phenomenon? What do you think is behind that? What do you think of Mélenchon? Well, I think it's interesting that in, if you look at America, Britain and France, you know, the, the person who becomes the tribune of the, for want of a better word, populist left is a grumpy old man <laughs> who some, has something particularly yeah. unique to the national characteristic. So, you know, it's Bernie Sanders in America, grumpy old man, but very American type of grumpy old man. <laughs> Corbyn, the same. And Mélenchon's very French, very French grumpy person. And so I think that is an odd aspect of his appeal. But I think he definitely is the surprise element of the last election, of this election. He, you know, he could easily have uh, eclipsed Le Pen, actually. And he's got a youth movement behind him. And I suppose the question looking ahead is, where does the youth movement go? Does France become have a kind of AOC mm. thing phenomenon happening, where a sort of more dynamic, attractive young leader you know, emerges and is successful? And, and Le Mélenchon, in an interview, the interview in which he said he would like to be the prime minister, also was asked about running again in 2027. And he sort of said, no, I'd like to kind of... He didn't say no exactly. He, said, Don't, he didn't rule anything out, but he, sort of, he implied that he was thinking about moving aside. So... Does France then get a kind of dynamic, different type of left? And then it will be a kind of, but what do they do about woke stuff? Because Mélenchon rather, you know, intelligently kept away from that. But what's the, what does that movement do about that? Do they become hyper-left, hyper-woke? It's, it's an interesting question. I don't have a clue what the answer is. Well, on, on Mélenchon and his youthful base, I wanted to ask you about those. This is... Uh, legitimately a curious question because I don't know the answer to it myself. Who are these young people? I mean, is this like momentum in the UK? Are they 
middle class, upwardly mobile, very well educated, quite distinctive from the people outside of Paris who worry about how they're going to pay for their fuel and keep the lights on and so on. Are we talking about a similar yes. phenomenon to, to, to momentum? I think so. I think it's sort of radical politics for, you know, well-off people, right? Yeah. <laughs> Among the youth. Uh, the youth element of that boat and it's and you know it's, it's not Zamor. Zamor's got it had his own thing and that's a kind of that was a sort of posh version of the right and Mélenchon was a posh version of that and I'm speaking very <laughs> glibly about this but I think there's something in that and I think if you look at French political tv it's incredibly um looks based you know the, the presenters are all really young and very good looking and uh Mélenchon's spokespeople were very young and some of them unbelievably good looking. Sorry, this is a sort of superficial thing I notice. And I think it, it you know, they they were able to convey the idea that they were a trendy movement, even though they were led by this cantankerous old man, which is again the Corbyn Sanders thing again. You mentioned there where the Mélenchon movement will go. Will it an attractive young person take over and become a kind of French AOC? Will it become hyper woke? And it made me want to ask you about France's relationship with wokeness, because the way I understand it is that many people in France on the right and the left are quite suspicious of woke politics and often see it as as an an American imposition, not entirely unjustifiably, through the universities. And we don't want this stuff in our universities. We want to carry on having the right to criticize Islam and make the points we want to make. And, And those kinds of arguments that I've seen lots of French intellectuals make. So what do you think are the prospects for wokeness in France? Because I think probably one difference between the Mélenchon movement and Momentum is that Momentum has been sucked into the woke agenda and it has gone down the trans road and the identity politics road and so on. Whereas I think in France, possibly because of the traditions of the Republic and assimilation and the idea of citizenship, those things don't necessarily cut through in the same way. Is that your impression of, is France resisting wokeness, Is I guess is what I'm saying? I think definitely it has stronger kind of antibodies against <laughs> wokeness, I'd say, because well, there's, there's an anti-Americanism across France, and I don't think that's a healthy thing. I'm, I'm pro-American, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, the French are allergic to the wokeism in a bigger way than we perhaps are in Britain. So I think set against that, you do have to you do have to see that the kind of institutions of France have been captured by a French socialism that was that was very became very elitist and then is is quite willing to throw works you know like transgender stuff stuff gets through in France you wouldn't think would get through at all that probably wouldn't get through in Britain and not certainly not in places in America so you think when they do it they <laughs> when they do wokeism, they'll do it far more radically. But mm. equally, when they reject it, they'll reject it far more radically. That would be my sense. Uh, and and then you've got to also think about the fact there's a huge Catholic population. You know, when people talk about this more, they say, "Oh, it's just middle class Catholics." Well, there's a lot of middle class Catholics in France, and they have a lot of children. So that that's the thing. And then you've got to think about the relationship between wokeness and Islamism, mm-hmm. and how you know, in in a in a kind of world in which things are fracturing into different movements, Islamism and woke, wokeness sort of feed off each other because Islamists see woke culture and they think, oh, we're right. You know, this is totally morally depraved, totally decadent. And then similarly, wokery kind of responds to Islam by going, no, we've got to be more progressive. We've got to, break, we've got to form a new world, in which, which is completely different. So the two phenomena speak to each other quite a lot in France. 
I just think I've got into very pseudo intellectual territory there, but I think the your your basic point is right that France is more allergic to wokeness mm. than perhaps we are in Britain. Yeah, one of the things that I talk to people about this all the time, I, I bore people rigid with the remind by reminding them because people tend to have forgotten this, which is that around 10 years ago in France, maybe nine years ago, there were huge protests against same-sex marriage. Hundreds of thousands of people on the streets getting into running battles with the police. And they will have been some of those middle-class Catholics you've just mentioned. There were, there were also family, pro-family groups. There were also gay rights groups who were worried about the implications for the, for same-sex marriage on the, on the idea of gay liberation. I actually think there is a, there is a bit of a line between those kinds of protests, and then the Gilets jaunes protest, which is not to say everyone in the Gilets jaunes will have been against same-sex marriage, but there's always been a culture of protest in France, of course. But over the past decade, it has started to take a slightly new form, which is a resistance against the, I guess, the neoliberal elites or the globalist agenda, which is not the nicest term and people get confused by it, and also by the imposition of these kind of politically correct ideas on a society that is not really ready for them or not really in favour of them. So if you look at those protests that have taken place over the past 10 years, particularly the Gilets jaunes protests recently, how do you locate them in politics today? Where do you see them fitting into the political discussion? So, I, I mean, the Gilets jaunes, it was an extraordinary phenomenon. And it, it, what it spoke to was the deep unhappiness in large parts of France. And Chris Caldwell has a piece today, an unheard, should be for the spectator, but it's unheard, you know, where he talks about this, go through parts of France, and it's just so bad. It's not just bad, it's just, it's just dead. Large parts of France is dead. Mm. And Marine Le Pen spoke about that a lot. And so I think the Gilets jaunes was a response to that. But then you do have parts of France that aren't dead, but they're very, very worried, which I think is the manif, manif was the manifestation, was the anti-gay marriage thing. That they, that was sort of, again, middle-class Catholics, and there's a lot of them saying, you know, this, this is worrying, this is not French, this is alien to us, and we have our own understanding of liberty. It's not the American understanding of liberty. Yeah. Those are two things that we're talking about, the antibodies to, to wokeism or the antibodies to neoliberalism, if you like. France has stronger versions of those, and they could they could erupt before anywhere else in Europe. Yeah. Okay, Freddie, my final question for you, trying to bring all these different things together, is just on whether you feel there's a crisis of representation in France and and whether that is reflective of a broader problem in Western politics. Because it strikes me when I look at France as very much as an outsider, I don't know France as well as you do and as well as other people do. Uh, but what I see, particularly in this presidential election, is an awful lot of voters either not voting or spoiling their vote or voting for a candidate they don't particularly like, but they think, well, at least he will keep Le Pen out, or at least Le Pen is saying something that I'm vaguely interested in in relation to economic problems. But there doesn't seem to be this wild enthusiasm for either candidate amongst a lot of the voters who voted for them. And you do get the impression that there are very, very significant numbers of people in France who feel unrepresented by the political class. And obviously that is repeated in various different countries in the West at the moment. Do you see that a crisis of representation in France? Do you think it's indicative of a broader malaise in, in Western politics? And, and how do you think we can shake this stuff up in a, in a meaningful way? 
I think there's, there's definitely there's malaise, there's, but I think maybe, maybe sometimes when, when we as Brits talk about it, we get in sort of cliches of like, oh, they're just angry and grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, if you look at what's happening in France, they are forming quite significant political movements. You know, Mélenchon, mm-hmm. Le Pen, Zemmour, they've all started to form quite things are happening in French politics. And these, the main parties have been totally eviscerated. They've been destroyed. And that has not happened in Britain because our parties have sort of managed to absorb the currents. And that's a really interesting question. I don't know exactly why that is, but I would suggest that it doesn't necessarily mean that the French are just giving up. It's that the French are actually trying to do new things. So I think France will be a very, very interesting country in in the next five to ten years politically, unless, you know, as some people think, the French are so angry and depressed that civil war is inevitable. Freddie, thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure, Ellen. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.